the head of MI6 herself was in Germany at one point, and it was discussed among the BND whether they should stop her at the airport from leaving the country based on what had happened, and the decision was made to let her go. This is Cold War Conversations. We continue the story of Bill, a US Army intelligence analyst from episode 127. Germany has now been reunified and Russian troops have withdrawn from the eastern portion. Bill tells us of the little-known story of continued US Army involvement in intelligence gathering alongside the German security services, the BND. We hear how Russian sources recruited during the Cold War were managed and how Britain's MI6 was cut out of receiving information they had received during the Cold War. We also hear about the involvement of the CIA in a joint BND-CIA mission to monitor the disposal of Russian nuclear weapons. It's a fascinating look into the murky world of human intelligence gathering, corruption and rivalry in the immediate post-Cold War period. Now, I could really use your support to help me to continue to produce these podcasts. A monthly donation of $4, £3 or €3 via Patreon will really help. And you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you are helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. Thanks to all our latest supporters, including Tim Simmons, Frederick Lundberg, Mary J. O'Grady, Robert Ritchie and Katie Brown. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help the podcast by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome Bill to our Cold War conversation. Uh, some, some of our um, B&D teams were very adept. Um, so they would employ some of the traditional human intelligence methods of starting a relationship with a, with a source, meeting them at a, at a ghost house or a restaurant or a bar, having that meeting um, recorded or else photographed from a distance. I did see occasionally photographs of, of our, our B&D teams with, an, uh, with a Russian officer at a restaurant or a bar. The goal of that was obviously to bring him deeper and deeper into our net, basically. Um, that was the long-term goal eventually. So it became more of that sort of work and less of, you know, what, what, what sort of kit um, do you have for us? Yeah. Yeah. And I, it, it's interesting because it makes you wonder how some of those sources that might have been recruited during that period then rose to perhaps higher levels within the, the Russian army in future decades. That 
exactly. If you if you bring in or deal with a Russian lieutenant or captain in 1993 or four in Germany, that lieutenant or captain 20 years later would be a major or a colonel uh, somewhere else. And that major or colonel, or even later on a general, the last thing he wants is to get a knock on the door or a phone call from his old friend um, Fritz from uh, Wunsdorf, Germany, uh, saying, hey, um, General, this is your old friend Fritz. Remember me? Uh, no, I don't remember you. Well, actually, I have these, these pictures of us having dinner at a restaurant in uh, Wunsdorf from 1993. And remember those papers that you, you gave me about your unit deployment? You know, um, I think that was what we're, we were working towards uh, at that point. Right, right. So long-term penetration. Yes. Once the Russian forces did leave, um, our unit had to move as well. We had been in Berlin. We had stayed in the building where USMLM had been. Uh, we had wanted to stay in Berlin once it was agreed that we would continue on doing this. Um, all of us wanted to stay in Berlin. The, the, the Germans wanted to stay in Berlin. But uh, we had to get the buy-in from both both of our um, higher-ups. Um, for us, to, for the Americans to stay, the, um, the Department of State would have had to okay that. And they were definitely not at all in favor of that. They didn't want to put us, put us undercover. Um, if they, if we were to had stayed, we would have had to blend in with, with, with them, with the consulate or, or the embassy, and that was something they did not at all want to have happen. Uh, the B and D side, um, they didn't want to have such a large operation being run out of the capital for some reason. Um, the German people, the German operatives, they didn't want to go to Munich because B and D was still headquartered in Munich. The last thing they wanted was to be drawn into the headquarters because everybody would be watching what they were doing. So it was decided, no, we, we had to leave. We had to move. So basically our, our commander went down to Heidelberg and kind of asked, okay, wh- where can we go? We need a place to transfer to. Long story short, it was decided Nuremberg would, would be the place. There was still a, a, a U.S. military area there in Nuremberg. It had been reduced um, a lot since over the past couple of years, but Nuremberg was still a U.S. U.S. community. For the Germans, it was closer, but not in 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 Munich. So the Germans were were fine with that. They decided to locate at a, a Bundeswehr installation that had been turned over to the federal government. The Bundeswehr moved out. Um, the facility. Um, had a building that we decided to move into. The cover story was we were going to be some sort of logistics unit, um, half German, half American, because there were still military forces in in, in southern Germany. Um, that was the cover that we could easily blend into that. Uh, we stopped wearing wearing uniforms, which people like me loved. That was fantastic, just <laughs> fantastic. Um, 
So we did move to. So did you get a clothing clothing allowance for civilian uniform? No, you do only if if it's if it's required. If you have to get fancy and coat and tie, then you do. If you're just wearing jeans and t-shirts like like uh, we were, uh, no, you don't get any extra allowance, unfortunately. Right. <laughs> Um, so in the summer of '94, we—that's where we, we moved. We left uh, left Berlin, headed headed down to Nuremberg, and about two months after we got there, the U.S. Army announced that they would be closing Nuremberg as well. Uh, there were base closures happening everywhere, and uh, apparently, when our commander that spring and summer asked about Nuremberg, they told him, "No, it's going to stay open." So we moved, and naturally, they closed it. But it was decided that even in spite of that, because there were enough American units close by, either in Bomberg or Augsburg, um, that, 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 that's, that, that's fine for, for the U.S. For the Germans, it didn't matter. So it was agreed, no matter what, they would stay in Nuremberg uh, for, for the future. Right, right. And w- was there a fear that the BND had soviet agents within its ranks because obviously it had been penetrated by the stasi correct that was always in the back of people's minds um the cia had really didn't did not want to work with the bnd for that for that reason uh they were happy to let the u.s army um work with them but for some reason the cia held them held them off uh, because of that problem of course now it was a new era um, and I think this, it was the Stasi were really the ones who had run the, um, the operatives in, in BND. I mean, there may very well have been Germans who had worked directly for the KGB, but I think the feeling was the Stasi had been the ones who had done the most damage. And since there was no more Stasi, we assumed that uh, those case files were transferred uh, from the Stasi to, to, to the KGB. Because there were those files, the the Rosenholtz files, weren't they? Which were the the Stasi registry's collection of their undercover assets in the West. Correct. Is that are you referring to the one that was that was allegedly taken out of the Stasi headquarters when it was raided? Allegedly, yes. It is. It is the one that I'm allegedly referring to. Yes, <laughs> allegedly. <laughs> I, my memory was that maybe you can maybe you, you you might know more about this in 1990 in January when the crowds raided the Stasi headquarters in East Berlin. The, the story was the CIA somehow got in there and took a safe out of it or something like that. That's my recollection yeah. of that story. Yeah, it's a shame we don't know more detail on that. That would be a that would be a good episode. If you find somebody who could give me a first-hand account of that, I'd be very appreciative. God, I would love to talk to that person too. Um, <laughs> my only further information or, that I read was that at some point, the Germans kept year after year demanding to know what was inside of it. The CIA would say no, but at some point, they did share some of it with them. That's something that I remember in my mind, but I don't. again, I have no first-hand nor second-hand yeah. knowledge of that. So, I, yeah, I'm always fascinated by the possibility that there were some that were just never uncovered. Probably true. And I'm guessing that there were some very high ranking people who 
it was decided to not let known that 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 was the case. I just have to believe that. That's my theory. I can't prove it. I have no information about it. There were probably some people who who were sources, and if it got out, it would cause extreme an immense level of embarrassment. Yeah. So the the American side just decided. Yeah, exactly. Let sleeping dogs lie. Exactly. Exactly. One one thing that I did find interesting that you you whilst the CIA were a bit wary of the BND, they did partner on one mission in ninety three. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yes, we did have one uh one time. I wasn't told exactly how and why it's it started, but there was a shipment of nuclear warheads from somewhere in East Germany. And the, the plan was to track it directly from the installation. It was going to be moved along trains up to, up to the Baltic Sea, put on ship, and then by, by ship back to Russia. And why and how the CIA wanted to get involved, I don't know. I was not told. Um, but they did come to our building one day. There was a team of three or four of them. And they looked like like um, hippies from the 1960s, you know, long beards and... They look like out of Woodstock or some sort of rock festival, um, but they spoke uh, excellent German, and I guess one of them spoke excellent Russian, and um, so th- they wanted to get our maps. We actually had had, had better maps than they did on, on on this location in East Germany. So uh, they partnered up. We had our, the BND team with the CIA team, and they had some special sensors that we didn't have access to, I guess the CIA had this equipment to see inside the trains, um, the train cars. And with that equipment, they could assess how many warheads or the strength of of, of the warheads themselves. So they tracked them all the way from wherever it was in East Germany up up to the Baltic coast. And I believe that they had, they had people in St. Petersburg who would then track from the ship, from the Harbor, to the trains, to wherever they were going to be tracked to in, in Russia. And w- one of the German press articles that I've collected, that me- that mission was actually mentioned. There was some sort of mishap um, on one on the train platform at one of those locations. I wish I could give you more information. I don't know what the nature of the mishap was. Um, it all went, and in, in, in the end, it all went well. But the CIA did partner from, on that one individual mission uh, with the BND and by by default with us as well uh, to, to actually track the movement of warheads out of East Germany. That's a great description of the CIA team. 1960s hippies, and it it just <laughs> they looked out of place. I mean, I, I, they were trying to be un-CIA looking like, and I guess they did, but they, they just looked. I mean, uh, hippies in Germany dress slightly different than hippies in the States. Uh, these guys. Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at caskers.com. 
it was we were just like astounded that they would dress like that but <laughs> brilliant brilliant i think you you mentioned you know earlier on that the the BND decided they wanted to work with the Americans rather than the British. Were the were the British still getting information? To be honest, the whole time that I worked there at CAD B when we had ended the mission, um, I, there was never once a um, um, a, a British officer in the building or British personnel. But I was told that we, we were passing the reports that we produced over to the British. And uh, we all knew that the Germans knew it. It was it was fine. Um, apparently, when we did when we left Berlin and moved down to Nuremberg, um, that relationship soured a bit because we were now the the main focus of our unit was to handle these uh, Russian sources now who were back in Russia. And there was enough friction as it was. And this is a question you asked earlier about friction. Um, between the U.S. and the and the German side, it was highly unusual to co-manage a source. Both sides had agreed to share everything, and that meant the personal information on these Russian sources, their full names, their date of birth, their um, hometown, place of birth, spouses, children, and then where they were going. Um, it was un- unusual for one side to share all everything with a, with a, with a different side. Mm. It was c- quite common. The information they provided t- to share that was certainly something that um, U.S. and and the British would share with each other, or the Germans and U.S. would share with each other. But to actually share all of it, uh, there were some people in the BND who were not happy with that. Um, from the U.S. side, we had. Um, not much leverage. As time went on, we had less and less leverage to to exert on our on the BND. So we, we were we were just being ni- as nice as we could, and our leverage was 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 um, financial. DIA was providing a lot of the money that was being funneled to these sources as um, payments. The BND was using some of their money, but. Apparently, they didn't have as much money as as the U.S. side did. So we had basically bought our way into getting the information on these sources. Um, eventually, it was agreed to keep on going. Uh, we would share the information about who these sources were and this and that. But one of the conditions was that the cooperation on that would stop with the British. We would keep on continuing to share the information they provided. But even then, at some point, there were some reports, some things that were a little sensitive that the Germans, I think, felt should stay just between both uh, the U.S. and and the BND. So I think the British got kind of a little jilted in that, that they were, and they knew they were no longer being given uh, all all the information they had gotten before. So I think that's what happened over time. Right, right. Yeah, no, I can imagine the British getting uh, up, upset about that. Um, was this information also being shared with the CIA? Uh, yes, yes, yes. Okay, so Aldrich Ames was still in position, wasn't he, until 
93 was it he was he i know exactly when it happened because i was in washington when it happened he was arrested in january or february 94 okay and and so presumably perhaps some of these sources had been betrayed by his treachery in theory possibly yes i i'm just sort of like thinking through you know all of this stuff's being shared with the americans and perhaps it crosses ames's desk and he's going straight to the fsb as well i don't know for sure i do know that the kind of information that we were getting was shared whether the personal information on the source was shared right I can more than I give it a second. Okay, so, I don't really know that for sure. No. Okay. So, so BND would own the personal information of who the source was, but the information the source was providing would be shared equally between BND and yourselves. Correct. Correct. Right. Okay. Got it. Got it. Correct. Now, yeah, there was something in your notes about MI6 wanting to buy some information that came to light years later at least um to me um and now we're getting very close close to the end of all this but and now knowing what i knew then and reading what i had read years later it kind of made sense to me that as the as the british were kind of being excluded from some of this uh, they didn't want to be excluded from some of that. And apparently at some point, I'm going to guess 94 or 95, um, there was contact. I don't know who made who the first contact, but the the commander of the BND unit and um, one of the teams, a two-man teams, were, were in contact with the British. And the British, when I say British, I'm guessing at this point, MI6. Um, they wanted to keep that flow of information coming. And um, at some point, offers were made and it was agreed that the uh, one of these German teams, this was the team that did the most, um, probably did the best work looking back for the five-year period. They were probably the the, the best work that they did. They were, they were our, the, the, the best team that the BND had at our unit. And the commander decided to, for their own, for their own uh, reasons, supply the British uh, with the same information that they were sharing with us. So I fully can understand the viewpoint of the British. Uh, there's this information that's collected. We used to get this kind of stuff. Now we're not. Um, we still want it. Here's some money. All you're doing is giving us the same information that you're giving to the Americans. So here's some cash. And for the for the B and D guys, you know they weren't spying. And in, in their minds, they weren't spying for the Russians. They were <laughs> spying for the British. And the British were a friendly Western organization. Um, so for for them, they were making a little money on the side. Um, doing their jobs, but just not only giving it to the Americans, but also giving it giving it to the British. But this was corrupt behavior 
by these BND guys. It, it obviously was. In intelligence, you're, you only give to who, who you're told to share things with when you go outside to a different intelligence organization. Even if they're, if they're one that's friendly, um, you don't do that. That's, that's, it's not as, and, and the public may view it as less serious than if they had provided it to a, to the Chinese, for instance, or the North Koreans. Yeah. yeah. It was the British after all here. So we're not talking anything like that, but it, it does violate uh, one of the, one of the prime, prime rules of, of intelligence is to not share what you're not supposed to share with someone. Yeah. Because that, that was one of the classic sort of espionage strategies, wasn't it? To approach a source. Uh, let, let's say if I was a Stasi officer, I would approach a source and say, I'm working for Swedish intelligence. Can you give me this information? Correct. Um, and, you know, it's not too dissimilar to that, but obviously is clearer that they are dealing with British intelligence, not somebody who's pretending to be British intelligence. From the viewpoint of, of MI6, yes, um, it's dangerous in terms of being, if you're caught, the embarrassment, it's more of an embarrassment than it is any sort of threat. And um, there was yeah. something that I did send you from a book, apparently the head of, um, of, of MI6 herself was in Germany at one point. And it was discussed whether among the BND, whether they should stop her at the airport from leaving the country based on what had happened. And the decision was made to let her go and not um, get it, get in her way. Wow. Obviously, as we get to 95, the unit's starting to be wound down, I believe. It had shrunk enormously from what we had in Berlin. We probably had on the U.S. side – um, commander was a um, U.S. Army lieutenant colonel. Deputy commander was a civilian. Probably had about seven or eight civilians and three enlisted people, myself and two others. So, yeah, we were about 15 p- people altogether. Very, 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 very small. Um, throughout 1995, uh, the U.S., as it always does every couple of years, decides to reorganize into something different. Uh, they created the, the U.S. military created something called the DHS, the Defense Human Service, and they decided to wrap up our unit in terms of that national national um, organization. So we would no longer be part of U.S. Army Europe. Um, we would be actually a unit controlled completely by by um dia and that right. that went into effect october of 1995 um the commander we had who had been with us from berlin he, he retired uh, and they sent in a military officer who had been part of of human for years and years um, so it was bec- it, the plan was for the u.s side to be small but it would be much more professional much more human intelligence organized. Again, we had all of us who had been with the unit, we had been um, bean counters, order of battle people. Uh, but we yeah. adapted and evolved with the times to become this human organization. But n- very few of us had really been trained for it. Uh, right. The plan was to actually 
bring some people in who were who were, who would be able to talk um, much more professionally and competently with the B and D people on, on on sources, running sources in and out of Russia. Because um, again, these guys were now back in Russia, so how would yeah. we keep those contacts going? How would we get information back? That would be the focus uh, from ninety five um, going forward. Right, and so this was the the end of your t shirt and jean wearing days in the army. Yeah, I from from me and myself personally, my date of getting out was March of ninety six. Um, I had decided to move on. It had been just o- over ten years for me. Um, it was time to go. Um, I, looking back, if I made the right decision, I don't know. It's a different topic, but. Um, I was ready at that point to move on and to do something different. So the unit was, so for me, things were coming to an end. Uh, the unit was changing over to, to a, to be fully run by DIA. Um, there was only a position for one in one person enlisted person. Uh, so the position wasn't there for me anyways, even if I had wanted, wanted to stay. So if I had stayed in, I would have had to go back back to the real army again. And I didn't want to really do that. <laughs> no, I'd been, I, I, I was spoiled. I was extremely spoiled during my 10 years and I did not want to go back to the real army. So. Yeah, yeah. No, I can understand that. But I think your last day in November 1995 was quite eventful. The day it all happened, it was ironic because I actually, my first day in the army was was November 13th, 1985, and I left the unit November 13th, 1995. It was my, wow. I, I had um, got, got my car filled up. I would be spending my last couple months in Augsburg with the 66th Military Intelligence Brigade just to pass some time until, until I was let, let go. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week to be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War. As a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. So that morning, I... Got my car filled up, turned in my my army apartment, and went over to the unit to say my goodbyes. Um, it was a really hard time. These are the people that I'd worked for 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 six years. It was a really hard time, and went in there, said goodbye to everybody. Um, and as I was leaving the building, uh, the parking lot, I noticed there were a lot of a lot of. Um, vehicles, um, high-end Mercedes and BMWs, and drivers, suit and tie. So I, I assume there was some sort of VIP from the BND who was visiting. That that did happen from time to time. Um, 
they all looked at me as I walked off the building and kind of gave me strange looks and, but nobody stopped me or anything. So I said, okay, it's a VIP. And I left and I drove my to my new unit, reported in and started to that short life. About a week later, maybe two weeks later, I, they called me in that there were some problems with some paperwork from my last unit. So they needed me to fix something. So I called up there on the telephone and basically it was, they told me the worst thing you can ever imagine ha- has happened. I go, what the hell do you mean? We can't talk about it on the phone. The worst thing has happened. And I'm like, you know, I'm starting to think, okay, did what happened? So I, so I had to go yeah. back up there and talk with somebody. And at the time that it happened, we were, well, I was told that morning they came to arrest they came to arrest the commander, the um, the German commander, the, uh, the colonel, lieutenant colonel, and the other team that was there. So three of them were arrested. At the time, we all thought that they were double agents. We didn't know about the British connection until later. We were just told they were arrested for espionage. So you can just imagine the shock of everybody, you know, who was there. We had worked with these with these guys for f- five years. Had social events, parties. Um, we were all together on the team, working for for one same goal. Um, it, and I kind of lost at that point. I just assumed, my God, my God. That a month or two later, new stories did pop up in um, in the Spiegel, uh, the magazine in Ger- the news magazine in Germany, about the unit. It had come out about what had happened. My memory, I don't know at what point that I learned it was that the British um, connection or not, but at some point I did find out about it. And I guess the initial thought was, okay, they were sharing with the British. It doesn't sound so horrible, but still that they weren't supposed to be doing that. Did they also share with the Russians as well? And I think for the first month, several months, I didn't know that for sure. I didn't know what, what had happened about that. Over time and news media and talking with the people who, had, who I worked with there, um, it became much more clear that uh, it really was only the British. And I think because of that, when these guys did eventually um, were prosecuted and they went to trial, uh, they weren't... They were punished, but not severely. Um, it was viewed more as as um, corruption case, as you had said, as opposed to a criminal case. Yeah, yeah. So they weren't wow. punished severely. I don't think they did any serious prison time. In Germany, you have to really be horrible to go to prison for some reason. For um, but these guys were fined, and of course they were thrown out of the BND yeah. and, and the military that one of them was the Colonel. I think he lost his commission in the air force. I can't, I'm not certain about that, but I think that. Yeah. Happened. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, one of the things I didn't pick up on, which um, you mentioned is, is in your notes earlier is that you made a trip to Zossen Wunsdorf, the headquarters of the uh, Soviet forces in Germany quite soon after they left it with the BND and you said it was fun. 
What does what does that mean? <laughs> Fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mentioned earlier uh, some of these bases. Um, once it was turned over, the BND teams would go in and look around for documents and trash. And the Russians were they didn't care. They would leave stuff. Uh, they would leave trash everywhere, and some of it was actually of value. Not any anything secret or top secret, but some supply documents for uh, for a battalion. How many? How much food? How much? How many supplies you would need? And we could use that to for an assessment or a study. Um, occasionally, they would they would have us go along. Me because I spoke German, I was able to go several times in some of these bases and. Yeah, Zossen Wunsdorf was the headquarters for the W for the WGF, uh, one of the last ones to be turned over, and I was the second American to go in there after it was turned over. Um, we just went into the headquarters building where the general, the the Russian general, had been, and it was just a nice, f- funny feeling. Like here I am, you know, for the last X number of years, this was the headquarters of where it all happened, and. Um, they did leave things on the wall. There, there was a picture of Lenin hanging on one of the walls there in his office that I, that I nabbed. I took with me as a souvenir. Have you still got that? I still have it. It's it's in storage, but I still have it. Um, I took another one from another, I think where the Air Force headquarters was. I don't remember the name of the airfield. I took one from there too. But yes, I took some of these souvenirs. Um, they left them on the walls. They didn't didn't even bother to take them with them. Um, you just having been stationed in Heidelberg for three years, three and a half years in '86, I was I saw Campbell Barracks in Heidelberg, the headquarters of the U.S. forces, and here I was um, five years later walking about the yeah. the empty headquarters of the of the Russian forces. And that was the same place where the Wehrmacht headquarters were in World War II as well. The Wehrmacht, correct. Uh, Wunsdorf was a, yes, it's a huge, huge headquarters uh, for the Wehrmacht in the war. And they just, the Russians came in and just kept using the same, same place. So did they gut it of all their equipment as well? All the kit was gone. I mean, there were no more vehicles or anything like that anywhere just a lot of trash and some papers that were of value. So we, we had people go through some of the papers that we collected and not all of it was of value, but maybe all of a sudden there would be maybe, maybe not in Wunsdorf, but at, an, at another base, maybe there would be a, a booklet about, about Zamara, a city in, in Russia. All of a sudden you get a lot, a lot of books or maps about Zamara. So you might know, okay, this unit here is, is going in that in that area, that sort of information you, you try to right you try to find right. It must have been really eerie, sort of wandering the the corridors of. It was a huge installation. Wunsdorf yeah. was just huge. It really was a mini city. It was just a Soviet. It was the biggest Soviet, or I'm sorry, Russian um, outpost outside of Russia, and um, yeah, you'd see things everywhere and you just think to yourself wow this is how they worked how they lived um just amazing to want to see it yeah yeah um just one thing I'll, i should say in the back of my mind something i've wanted to do is to write write a 
a book about this. It wouldn't be about myself, about what I did, because I don't think that's as interesting. But I think CADB and the organization after the close of the, of the Allied missions, it really hasn't been explained very well. And many of the people that I work with, several of them had told me that I'm the one who should do it. I don't know if I really could. I don't want to write a, this is what I did, this is what I saw kind of book. I'd want to get information from the archives. I'd want to try to get and print yeah. that, that kind of material. So this is more like a, a unit history rather yes. than a personal history. I don't want to do a personal history. I'd rather do it to do it right, a unit history. But there's so much involved, the time, the investment of, of my time. I'd want to include mm. you know, this, the, the German operatives. And actually, one of them who had been arrested um, is on Facebook, actually. <laughs> and uh, oh, really, I'm not a Facebook friend of his. However, my boss from that time and him are Facebook friends, so I know I, I could reach wow. him. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'd want to interview one of the Russians who had been arrested. Um, the Russians did, I should say this, the Russians did um, uncover a couple guys who had been our sources. I remember in, in, in the German media, they covered the trial of one of them. Is he still in prison? I don't know. Um, is he free? I don't know. I would love to talk to that to that person and include his, yeah. his his stories and how he got involved with it. So many angles to the story that I think need to be addressed. Someone should do it. I don't know that I could do it alone. And for every story that we talked about here today, there's yeah, there's still so many more that have not seeing the the um, light of day that still should be told at some point. And we have further information such as videos and links in our show notes, which will show as a link in your podcast app. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Frederick Esposito and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate.
By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.